Well, good afternoon. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, there's uh, everything to be gained by being in a uh, bookstore with fine books, with fine friends, and uh, fine conversation. And uh, there's no finer conversation I could imagine today than with my colleague, Dr. Jason Allen. He delivered the McCall Leadership Lecture earlier today. And uh, he is on campus as our guest and as a member of the Southern Seminary family, and always so. He's marked with the tribal markings, uh, both the MDiv and the PhD from Southern Seminary and serving here. Uh, it's a great joy to, uh, to work together in many capacities here and now to work together. The Lord's used him tremendously. He's demonstrated uh, phenomenal leadership at Midwestern Seminary. So the McCall Leadership Lecture is what brings us to this occasion, but we're ready to talk about all kinds of things. And at a certain point, we're going to turn uh, to you for certain questions that you may have. But uh, until then, I get to serve as the Grand Inquisitor. <laughs> and uh, we're going to have a conversation. Jason, welcome to the campus. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Love what you're doing with the place. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a kind of place where uh, just a few of us on planet Earth, we can say uh, this is the kind of place we, uh, we dream of and Really enjoy getting to see take shape. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful place. The campus is stunning, of course, and uh, this this room itself is beautiful. And so, love the book table. I trust that stays there permanently, just like that. Yeah. So th there, there's normally like a, a, a Jason Allen Arthur Shrine, but we took that down <laughs> just so you wouldn't be embarrassed uh, that it was there. Uh, but in all seriousness, this is uh, this is a place where we we have two different kinds of books in a bookstore like this. One of the things, and uh, Jacob. Percy's giving great, uh, great leadership to this uh, bookstore. I'm looking forward to doing something like this where we're just going to, I'm going to talk about books and how to build a library. And, but also the essence of a bookstore. It would be fun to have that kind of conversation. There are two kinds of books you're going to find in here. Um, the, the one are books we commend, and uh, the other are books we carry. That is, uh, that is a part of the inventory because this is an academic institution, an academic bookstore. Uh, but what is fun is to uh, is to talk about the books we commend, and uh, so that's what that table means. We, we're actually commending your books. Thank you, very kind. And again, it's such a joy to be here. It it, it, it touches on every human emotion for me. It's uh, an honor given at Southern Seminary, Duke McCall, Al Mohler inviting. It's a joy because it's amongst friends. It's sweet because of the memories here, and and honestly, it's hard for me not to just drift into nostalgia every step of the way. And that's all right. That can be a healthy thing. As long as you don't live in the past, and uh, and you don't, but I'm going to ask you to think about the past. What's the most important book other than the Bible you've ever read? Now I hate this question asking me, which is why I'm now culture shift taking advantage of the opportunity to ask it. <laughs> no, I would say probably J.I. Packer's Knowing God in college, and so I became a believer in fresh. Freshman year in college, you my story, I won't rehearse it all here, but grew up in a Christian home, college athlete, went off to college, first semester, became acutely aware of my sin. Going to college thinking I would close the door on the moral expectation, spiritual influence of my family, but as I was moved out from under that, the, the conviction intensified. Became a believer. I don't know heads or from tails. I went to a bookstore in Mobile, a Christian bookstore, and I walked in, and like I think you go in to buy a Bible, and there's like a shelf with a Bible, and that's it. I still remember standing there, and there are like hundreds of Bibles to choose from, and not even knowing this dilemma existed. And being 18 years old, trying to sort it out, and I bought a little NIV pocket copy, uh, a New Testament, and I lived with that during college. And then I met a few friends, some of which you know, Dan Dumas and others, and uh, somewhere along the way, at that 
point in time, I was given G.I. Packers Knowing God, and it was just profoundly helpful to me because I grew up in a sweet church, Southern Baptist Church, uh, not a particularly theological church, at least my experience at that point in time. And so this just helped to frame so many things for me, including the importance of actually knowing God. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, I would give a very similar testimony, and I would say that the second book other than the Bible that completely changed my understanding of Christianity was Knowing God, and it was brand new. It was a classic by the time you read it. It was brand new. I'd never heard of J.I. Packer. He had been known to uh, Anglican conservatives because of his book, Fundamentalism and the Word of God, but this was brand new. And... uh, and I, I, I got to write a, a book chapter honoring Don Whitney, uh, Fetchrift, uh, about two years ago. And I said, look, in my spiritual life, there are three books that completely transformed uh, the way I, I understand the devotional life. And, and I would say that comes after, for instance, uh, Calvin's Institutes, which actually is profoundly devotionally uh, important to me. In preschool? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, the 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 the, 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 the uh, edition of the institute with pictures. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it was, I'd say, the three books that that really, really have helped me in my just spiritual life, my devotional life, were uh, "Knowing God" by J. A. Packer, and uh, and and then uh, John Piper, and uh, I won't even just say one book, but but basically his 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 devotional writings, and then Don Whitney. And especially the idea of praying the scripture, that revolution in my, my life. As an adult, I mean, it just, it really made a material change in how I learned to pray. So it's well, fun to honor people that way. Right. And to connect with you, Don, here, you know, I'm in college serving on right. staff now at Dolphin Baptist Church. We have a guest right. conference leader named Don Whitney right. who comes in town, and I'm a junior in college. I'm responsible to help host him. And uh, I get to know him, further know his books, which impacted me, uh, develop a love for fountain pens at that point in concert with him, and uh, it's just sweet how some of these relationships connect. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, just to, to share a world and a life together is, uh, is a marvelous gift. All right, so that, that was uh, the, the one book. What is the book that had more influence on you in thinking about being a seminary president? Now, I realize, by the way, there are no books on how to be a seminary president. Yeah, so I can this tell you the book has to be something did. different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The I, conviction to no, no. That's right, that's, that's right, that's right. So I, I got culture shift first. Okay. Conviction gathering right. storm. Okay. <laughs> no, look, I, I will yeah. tell you that for me, from college to right now, and no doubt in the future, biographies have been so shaping. Yeah. I mean, I have right now in my briefcase, they'll be with me on the plane, you know, an 800-page biography of FDR. Why am I reading it? I've read countless biographies of FDR. I just love reading biographies, whether it's presidential, church leaders. I would say in college, you know, in these early years, reading biographies, everything from Timothy George on William Carey to Roland Bainton on Martin Luther, and you, you go down the line, and, and they're just so impactful. And it touches on what I said this morning a little bit because, look, I believe in the theory of leadership. Again, I consume so many of these resources, as do you. I try You're to, right. Yeah, and I try oh, to contribute yeah. to some of those. But, but seeing how people have actually led and learning from that, right. and, and you find yourself drawing lessons that you only realize real time. You, you'll, you'll be right. thinking about a problem six months later, and it'll occur to you that something similar happened in the life of that leader 100 years ago. Right. right. You know, I, I, I actually, in the conviction to lead, did write about that. Historical biography has been more influential in my life and understanding of leadership than anything else. And by the way, I think there are deep biblical roots for that, I'm going to argue, because you look at the annals of the king, you know, you, you, you look at the historical uh, portions of the Old Testament, 
uh, and even you know, in the book of Acts. I mean, you're, you're learning by how leaders in the crucible of ministry or, or of history are leading. I'm doing a Thinking in Public uh, tomorrow with Andrew Roberts, whom you greatly uh, ad- admire as well and know. And uh, one of the things I'm going to say in that Thinking in Public is that I think the most influential writer right now in leadership is Andrew Roberts, and he doesn't know as what he's doing. But he writes about historical figures. The one we're talking about tomorrow is George III. And uh, again, you think, you know, George III, the subtitle of the book is The Last King of America. Uh, it is a stellar read, and it's, it's about leadership. Right. Of course, you know, I think of Richard Nixon, who when was asked about leadership. He pointed to biographies, and he said he learned how to be a political leader by, by reading the life of, of Benjamin Disraeli. And by Robert Blake. Yeah. 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 And by the way, that's one of the things that's kind of fun. So you see that Richard Nixon, in his book, Leaders, he wrote a book entitled Leaders, and it was about vignettes, and they were all people he knew, you know, Charles de Gaulle and others. And he said that, that very same thing. He said that uh, his, uh, his, his understanding of leadership was really forged by... Not, not that you're holding up Richard Nixon, by the way, as your paragon of leadership, but whatever he did, he did get twice elected president of the United States. So you look at that and you recognize what a pivotal point in history Nixon was. And he says he learned from Robert Blake's biography of Disraeli. Okay, so this is before the internet, you know, when I read this. So I've got to find now Robert Blake's biography of Disraeli. And uh, that was not easy to do back in, you know, 1985 or 86. So I finally got it. And the point I want to make is, I didn't think it was a great biography. So in other words, it takes, it takes a, a reader and a book at a certain moment. Sure. Sure. Right? sure. No, that's right. And so look, I have always have biographies near at hand and I, I love them. I mean, there's certain things in life you kind of like have to read because the right. job requires of you. Right. But boy, I, 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 I love to read yeah. biographies. Yeah. Yeah. The last uh, two, two nights I, uh, I, I started and finished. Uh, a biography of Abraham Joshua Heschel. And it's one of those things, it's in the Jewish Lives series by a uh, major publisher. And, and many of you will have no idea who Abraham Joshua Heschel was. He's the most important Jewish intellectual in the, in the 20th century. And, and, and that's saying a whole lot when you consider Jewish experience in the 20th century. And very influential on the old faculty at Southern. You know, he was one, he was one of the theological heroes of the old moderates. In, and so I really want to read this. And I got to tell you, you, you're going to want to get that. You're going to want to order it. Yeah, I'm curious what drew you to it in the first place. Because Abraham, first of all, Abraham Joshua Heschel, the, the author is a very good historian. That series, by the way, is phenomenal. Like, like, for instance, the most fun I had in that series thus far is the biography in the Jewish Live series of Bugsy Siegel, the Jewish mobster. Trust me on this. The guy died one of the most Hollywood quality mobster deaths in all of American history. But people forget that, you know, Las Vegas was really started by the a Jewish mob. And uh, it's just a fascinating point of American history. You're looking at this. So anyway, yes, I, I did not find illustrations to use in sermons in the Bugsy Siegel biography, but I commend it to you. Well, I'll have to get it post haste. And being from Kansas City, a good mafia read comes in very handy. There are stories there. Yeah, people forget that uh, Kansas City is where the mob laundered its money through uh, cattle business. Right. The 19, North Kansas City, where the seminary is located, um, was the hotbed of, of, the, of the Kansas City syndicate. In the 1970s, the FBI actually eavesdropped on mafia leaders from our campus. And so there's a, a long and rich history of Midwestern Seminary and the mafia in Kansas City. 
he would have you to believe that's history. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. Uh, in in reading, I mean, so when do you read? Me, primarily in the mornings and at night, yeah. and not much in between, except when I'm waiting, which I always right. have books in my briefcase if I'm waiting. Right, right. And it tends to be, as the day progresses, less and less specifically job-related or project-related. Yeah. So the biographies tend to be at night late. Of course, we're wired differently. You're, you're working right. more at night. I'm reading for leisure late at night. I get up very, very early in the morning, and that's sermon prep, writing prep, whatever I'm doing project-wise. Yeah. Yeah, I, so much of my life is because I have to do, I mean, I got a thinking in public tomorrow, so guess what, you know, that book's going to have to be completely read, marked up, and, and ready to go. And, and so a lot of my reading is set by what I've got to do tomorrow, or a, a, a writing project that, that's immediately due. But I, if it's at all possible, if the Lord allows, I have to do some clear-my-head reading before I can sleep. So, in other words, if I'm working really hard on uh, on defending against a particular Trinitarian heresy, which is something I'm dealing with right now, um, I, I don't go to bed on that because my brain won't stop. Right. And so that's when I read about Jewish mobsters. You know, even if you're only doing it for 30 minutes, it, it it's just therapeutic. Right. And for me, back to the biographies, it takes me to another time and place. Right. And it is sort of therapeutic, and to me, it incentivizes, like, what I got to read to what I get to read. Because, like, I mean, I, there's reports, there, there's just stuff that's before you, and that's not onerous. Those are things that, you know, we enjoy diving into as well. But if I know, okay, once I get through this, I get to read that, right. it motivates me all the more. No, and as a matter of fact, that's, an, that's a, a, an advice that I think students need to hear. I think you put that very well. Uh, I have I, – I stack books everywhere, frankly, but on the steps of my study because – as soon as you know anywhere else to put them, put them there. And uh, I will tantalize myself. I'll incentivize myself with a book. I will not do that until this essay is finished. Then I will read that. I do find that motivating. Yeah, one of these days we're going to find you dead underneath a pile of books that like just collapsed on you, we're sure. What a way to go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> May I die under a pile of good books. That's right. That's right. I don't want to be die under a pile of... Jewish mobster books. You know, um, as you think about seminary students, college students, what would you tell them about building a library? Is that just a, is that a pre, are we old enough that we're just paper fossils and everybody else is digital? Perhaps, but I tell you, I, I am so given a paper because I like the, the tangibility of it. I mark it up. I, I dog ear the pages sometimes, depending on the book. Uh, and I, I just, I cannot get beyond that. I'm the same with newspapers. I just won't have the newspaper in hand. The second thing I would say, but to answer your question, the principle I would say is if you wait to, you can afford it, it'll never happen. And so I remember telling my wife on this campus, and she is so sweet, God bless her, she affirmed this assessment. I said, sweetie, if we wait till we can afford to buy books, I'll never library, just like if we wait till we can afford to have kids, we'll never have a family. And she's like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. And so bless her heart, as I am a student here and doing some little pulpit supply, we got to apply those little $200 honorariums towards building a theological library. For me then, you know, of course, you're dropping hints as what books to have. Danny Aiken was the dean here then. He had that little pamphlet, Building a Theological Library. That was so helpful to me. I began and still do prioritize biblical studies um, to, to commentaries and biblical studies for sermon preparation. And then, you know, I, I get, gosh, every week, sometimes daily, you know, 
from Baker to B&H to, to emails to New York Times book review of, of books coming across. And I'm always scanning to see, wh- wh- like, what do I need? And I live with this kind of fear of missing that something is coming out, and, and I didn't see it coming to, to purchase. You're good, by the way, of, uh, you know, uh, of course, the two of us have been friends and colleagues for so long, and we know each other's interests. You're very good at taking a photograph of a book cover and just slipping it to me in a text. I appreciate sure, that. You're better sure. at it than I am. I'm better at just saying to someone on the phone, you need to read this or thinking of it in a conversation. Uh, that is, by the way, the way I uh, order a lot of books. <laughs> um, I, uh, I see an advertisement, and I just take a quick snapshot of it and iPhone's a great thing that way. I, I do the exact same yeah. thing. And uh, then I can go back and, and sometimes can't think about that every day, but you know, every few days I'll just uh, go through the photographs and, and uh, decide what it is in what order. Yeah, and the thing about, about bookstores in general structurally, to me, for me, they are like idea generators. So I can walk through Barnes right. & Noble in Kansas City and, and oddly just walking through there, like bump into a solution for something going on institutionally or an idea denominationally or local church. Yeah. It just, in the walk through here, you see, look at book titles, authors, you know, subject matter. It just, right. it, it generates ideas. No, I, I mean, uh, and genuinely, uh, and, and Mary would say that the, the same thing is true of me and in ways that, again, some people understand, some people don't. But if I need to think, I'm either in my library or I, I'm in a bookstore. Uh, because, and, and and sometimes it's, you know, there are distractions. But even just being in the, and it's, it sounds mystical. I don't mean it mystical. It's, uh, you know, you see connections, and you think about this, you think about that. I, I'm not sure what it is. But uh, one of the things I, one of the ways I clear my mind is by going in, you know, even a chain bookstore or a local independent bookstore, and some of those things can be really weird. Sometimes that's important to see, you know, just in terms of where the culture is going. Uh, but, uh, you know, I look at, and, and new books, and that's why a library is different. Libraries, you know, got... If it's any good, it's got books that have been there for a very long time. But a bookstore, especially in today's uh, bookstore economy, you're going to see largely new list uh, or recent list books. And you just look at that and you go, okay, that, okay that's a conversation I need to have. That's, a, that, that's, a, that's an issue I need to address. So, yeah, it is a catalytic place. And I think as well, you know, it, it, it not only generates ideas but reminds you – of categories and genres and topics that should be on your radar because it's easy to get siloed for all of us. It's easy to think so localized what's going on before me right now, but then walk through a bookstore and and encounter other ideas, other opinions, other issues. And it reminds me, it prompts me to be more well, more well-rounded. Right. There's also a lot of before and after. So it just to take COVID, uh, there are no books on COVID from, you know, February of 2020. Uh, no one, no one knew to write about it. And then there were a lot of early books that were just basically nonsense. And it is interesting that in the last few weeks, some fairly significant works of reportage uh, have come out from major, major authors you know, on COVID. You go, okay, now all of a sudden we're going to learn the backstory. And, and so that I've, I've told people, just watch. We're going to learn what actually took place, regardless of what people were saying. Eventually the truth will come out. And I don't mean that in a sinister way, just in the unfolding history. We're about to find out what was really known, what was really going on. And that's kind of fun to see come out of nowhere because of history. Right. And as you know, the Bob Woodward's of the world who, who chronicle this stuff, they have a way of, of just asking the right questions and incentivizing the right responses. And, and just, again, most things do come out eventually. Right. You know, and Woodward's got his own agenda, but the fascinating thing is people ask him, how do you get people to talk? He's asking questions, and the guilty ones talk the most. 
That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, they'll basically say, no, I did not do that. The conspiracy didn't go that way. It went this way. Right. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So what is the book you want to write before you die? Oh, gosh. Um, the book I want to write before I die. I'm a lot younger than you. So maybe my attention well, okay, has so not focused Now that as you are a jerk, what is the one book <laughs> <laughs> that you want to write before? Write it before I die. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I, I enjoy writing. I've got some books over here, a few others that aren't on the table. I have a book on leadership coming out this fall uh, that I'm, I'm really, really proud of, excited about. It's called Turnaround, um, The Remarkable Story of Institutional Transformation and the 10 Principles That Made It Happen. So kind of the story of Midwestern past 10 years. You'll see some fingerprints there from you, of course, and I quote you in places. So that's been kind of the big heart book the past few years I wanted to get out. Um, I, 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 so I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I wish I could give you a, a clear, cogent answer, um, but nothing comes to mind. There's nothing that, that like I'm dying to get to next year. Okay. What about you? You, you know, um, a lot of people say to me, you know, the most important thing you need to write is a systematic theology. I, I, don't, I, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I do think that uh, that requires, in other words, I cannot do that while I'm doing this job. Right. Just to be honest, it's not, it's not going to happen. And so I, I will pray the Lord give me health and, and uh, the ability to do that in, in a next phase of life. Uh, but... Uh, I, I think right now the most important thing I need to write might be an extremely personal book, which basically would be a memoir mm. um, that I hope would be something like, you know, many of the historic memoirs in history. Uh, that's a bad sentence, historic memoirs in history, uh, that, that, of which we're aware. Uh, because in, in God's sovereignty, I am the hinge point of just an awful lot of relationships and knowledge. Sure. And like in the in the in the SBC right now, I recognize, and, and at Southern Seminary, at Southern Seminary, I am on this campus, the last human being who knew many people. Absolutely, and that's a burden to carry. I, I get emotional about that, but I, I am, I am the last person alive who knew, and it's because I was so incredibly young, um, and some of them were so incredibly old, uh, but. I mean, I, my pastor had done his Ph.D. under A.T. Robertson, um, who was trained by, you know, the founding faculty. I just, I, I, I need to write about these people before they're forgotten. So what year was T. Rupert Coleman born? Mm, pastor? I mean, I'm going to say probably like, oh, six, oh, seven. Okay. Basically, so, basically same age as Chris. Right. Will. So yeah. do, do you, did you know as a boy or encounter anyone who had encountered one of the founders? Of the institution? Uh, no, you mentioned Dr. McCall and uh, and Elizabeth Boyce, um, and I never met her. But I, I've often thought about my timeline, and I think that I think I think you know uh, she lived longer than to past 1959 when I was born. Never never had a chance to meet her. So I know I don't think anyone. Uh, but it's the next generation. Yeah. So. And and you knew some of the right. people who were trained by Hershey Davis and Sampy, sure. I mean, we call stuff right. Sampy, yeah. right? But I mean, you you've met W. Criswell, right? And so I mean that that's there's a stewardship of that. And I mean, I I can I had personal 
engagements with W.A. Criswell and Herschel Hobbs. Herschel Hobbs, I, I had one of the last conversations with him before he died. Um, and uh, they're just things, I, they're, they're stories I need to tell. And, and look, some of it's honor and some of it's, you know, just left for God's people to, uh, to kind of figure out. This is, this is the white hot heat of uh, controversy and struggle over the future of the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. And Southern Seminary. That's right. And as you know, Midwestern Seminary. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, that's a story that needs to be told, and it would serve us well to have it told. Well, I, I, I believe, it, by God's grace, I could write it respectfully and honestly. Uh, and and, and that's, that, that is a, a great challenge. But here, here's one of the strange things in life. You know, you know me for a long time. I had to, I had to go through years of hand-to-hand theological combat. But those are real-life human beings. People, right. And I hope I've always spoken of them with respect for that. And some of the people I had to remove from this faculty were people who had taught me. And uh, so there's a sense of real respect there. So may I ask you a question? You can ask anything. So since you're talking about that period of the 90s, how would your leadership then have looked differently or had to have looked differently if you were leading then in the context we are now as far as social media, the internet, and just the, uh, the mode and means of communication these days? Well, I don't know how much of it would have been possible in the social media age because you're having to do very hard things and you can't explain to everybody why you had to do very hard things. Being an, a, a president or a CEO of a very big organization or, or of a ministry means you walk around with knowledge of necessary decisions that you will never be able publicly to explain. Right. Um, there are things that are, for the sake of Christ, people, that's why you have elders in a church. There are things elders know, and sometimes elders are going to have to say to the church, you know, we've handled this, but we, we, we cannot. It would be devastating uh, were we to describe in detail. That's why you have elders. Right. Um, and, and so that, that's a, the, in a social media age, I mean, it's just, it'd be very, very difficult. Um, now, there was something less than that that was, was still new, and that is that until the conservative resurgence, a denominational elite basically controlled all the means of communication. And so even before the Internet, the ability to run off stuff on a copy machine and, mm-hmm. and to have an alternative press, you couldn't have had the conservative resurgence without an alternative press. Right, right. Yeah. That makes sense. Truth in crisis. Well, and, yeah, and, and, and other things, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, when you think of the leadership challenge that pastors face, you know, what's new? There's a sense in which nothing's new. There's nothing after the New Testament. There's not a new form of sin, but there are new opportunities for sin. There, there are new challenges. I think the most daunting reality of your pastor is you have 40 minutes, give or take, to try to preach into people something to counterbalance seven days and 24 hours of media, toxicity. toxicity. And look, I, I know that uh, I, I preached Sunday at a church in, in Kansas City and was talking about some of these things from the pulpit. And I said, look, I, people like us, we have to sound like we are fixated on sex. And we sound that way because our society actually is fixated on sex yeah. and, and all the different aberrations and practices and all that. 
And so, look, that is just the issue for our generation, everything from human identity to marriage to self-expression, you know, gender, uh, all that just rolled up, rolls up together into the great generational challenge. And it, it's a unique challenge for us because it's not just, you know, the, the traditional categories of sin, fornication, adultery, but, but, but it's so much more complex. And so you have media, entertainment, kids, school, influences, all that coming at people, challenging biblical expectations, biblical ethics, biblical moral standards. And, and for the pastor, it's on the one hand trying to preach in a way that is pouring the truth into people when they're getting so much falsehood, but also then to lead a congregation and shepherd through naughty church discipline issues. And, you know, the, when the deacon's daughter wants to get married and, and you begin to get in that counseling room and it's real complicated between her and, and him, all that is just very challenging. And so, look, I, I'm, I'm still a pretty young guy. I just turned 45. Um, this has changed so much in 20 years since I was, you know, pastoring a church as an MDF student here. The next big book I'm I'm writing, a uh, parables book, comes out in the spring. This is the spring, publishing wise. Um, but it, it is on the predicament of the church, which for the first time is now considered the immoral force in society um, over the sexuality and gender issues. So. You know, even in the liberal age, the church was supposed was recognized as you know having moral authority, but now it's a pernicious. The church is seen by the cultural elites and and by I mean just mass culture increasingly as a hostile force. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very interesting. Well, and it shows the emptiness of of political libertarianism because uh, that is not going to be extended is not being extended right. to all parties. No, that's exactly right.